Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. It is an absolute pleasure to stand here and bring the word to you all this evening. Uh, it's very exciting. I'm, I'm really excited. Um, been at City Light since August, um, which is pretty well when North Adelaide started. And to have the opportunity to bring the word tonight is at home, home church, is really exciting. So if you haven't been here in the previous weeks, we're in a five-week series looking at the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Um, They are sola scriptura, uh, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, and soli deo gloria. It's obviously in Latin. Why Latin? Because that's the, uh, or was considered to be before English got the Guernsey, the uh, scholastic language of the world. It was universal. Anyone who knew anything knew Latin. And so that's why we're in Latin. And these phrases mean, uh, so scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and glory to God alone. These are all forming the backbone of the teaching on salvation uh, of the Protestant church, which we are a part of. So the Protestant Church emerged after a number of scholars uh, from within the Roman Catholic Church stood up and objected on the grounds of Scripture uh, to some of the teachings and practices that were around the place in the Roman Catholic Church at the time. And each of these solas or each of these phrases is key in the Protestant Church in its theological distinction uh, from the Roman Catholic Church. God, at the time, God was taught and portrayed as one who is righteous, and the understanding of the day was that this righteousness was such that God would punish the unrighteous sinner. And the practices of the day uh, was that one would atone for their sins through various practices in the hope of receiving salvation. And so the reformers came to see that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel message. And this righteousness is what enables God to freely justify and acquit the sinner through faith. Hence, tonight, sola fide, faith alone. Therefore, good works are not a means or a requirement for salvation. Good works may be seen as evidence of faith, but are by no means salvific, that is, to bring bring salvation. Some of you, especially if you've been in churches or Protestant churches for a while, will be like, yeah, duh, like, this is what we know. Um, but let's, let's just look at this closely. The Roman Catholic teaching can be put as faith and good works yield or bring forth justification, which is, in my opinion and in the opinion of the Protestant church, a misunderstanding and misinterpretation of James 2, which we're not going to look at tonight, but James is looking to teach uh, on the nature of faith and the relationship uh, that it has between faith and work. Um, Yeah, we'll look at that another time. In contrast, the Protestant teaching uh, can be put as faith yields or brings forth justification and good work. So faith is its own entity that, that brings forth our justification and our good works, which is what we'll look at tonight. So what is faith? Uh, I think it's pretty important that we at least look at what faith is before we get into things. Faith is the means by which we receive 
God's gift of grace. Grace, which is what John looked at last week, grace alone. To give a bit of an idea as to what we really mean, in sport, any sport, let's just take AFL for example, one cannot simply throw a hand pass or kick the ball to another player. Look, I mean, you can, but it's to no avail. The second player must receive the ball, must take the ball. In the same way, God gives us his grace, he gives us his gifts, but we've actually got to receive them. And so that, that's what faith is, that's the role of faith, and we'll look at that tonight. So we're going to be getting into Romans, uh, chapters 3 and 4, which is pretty dense. All of uh, Romans, and particularly Paul's letters, are pretty dense. Um, but we will press on tonight, and I encourage you to press on. But before we do that, we'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for Paul, who's written this letter to the church in Rome. We ask tonight as we uh, look into, into Romans, we ask that you speak to each of us, open each of our hearts, give us a willingness to hear your voice, hear your word this evening. Encourage each of us tonight uh, through the dense material that we're going to look at. I just pray that you speak through me this evening and that we all may be blessed and edified and grow in maturity of faith this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're looking at Romans, a bit of background. Uh, Paul is writing to the church in Rome, a church that he didn't actually plant, which is significant to uh, the letter to the Romans. Primarily, uh, it's a Gentile Christian church. However, there was a Jewish presence in Rome, some of which uh, were pressuring uh, or pushing for the Gentile Christians to observe the Torah or the Jewish law, the Jewish customs. As Paul writes, we, we read that he longs to come and to be with the church in Rome, uh, to, to be with them, to spend time with them, to be of mutual benefit and encouragement to each other. He also wishes to defend the gospel that he preaches. Um, perhaps there, there's been uh, some confusion in Rome with, with what Paul's been preaching. We're not entirely sure, but Paul nevertheless wants to come and defend the gospel in Rome. As a whole, the chief message of Romans is to explain that salvation is offered and received through the gospel of Christ. And so Paul spends the opening chapters of his letter displaying and highlighting and teaching on the righteousness of God. And in doing so, uh, Paul has attempted to show the sinful nature of humanity, both Jew and Gentile. And as a result, God puts forward Jesus as the atoning sacrifice for all of the sins of humanity, as a demonstration of his righteousness, of his justice, of his mercy, and ultimately as a means for justification for us as sinners. What is justification, I hear you ask? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> justification is this, that God acquits him or her of sin and unrighteousness, declaring him or her righteousness in God's sight so that the person can stand before God as righteous. So we're looking at language that would have been used in a law court, language that was 
uh, looked at when someone had wronged someone else. Uh, and just, to be justified is very similar to be, being forgiven. As a bit of an aside, we're, lo- we're looking at the, uh, the solas of the Protestant Church. The Roman Catholic Church differs in its understanding and theology of justification. So where we as Protestants in a Protestant church believe that it is the merit of Christ given to the sinner in order to restore relationship with the Father, the Roman Catholic Church would believe that justification is a declaration made to the human and a transformation of that person into a truly righteous son of God. Now, we wouldn't necessarily disagree with that as Protestant church, but we would nuance it slightly different. And so, to the end of chapter 3, Paul has, uh, Paul has climaxed his discourse on the righteousness of God. And we get into the end of chapter 3 and into all of chapter 4, an explanation of that. And we see that Abraham is used as an example of justification by faith, faith alone. And this is the climax of what Paul's been talking about. And so, for those following along at home, we are looking at Romans 3, looking at verse 27. So if you'd like to read with me, um, there are Bibles in the pews if you don't have them. So looking from verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So this boasting that Paul is talking about, earlier in, in uh, Romans 2, the Jews were said to have been boasting before God because they have the law. And so Paul wishes to do away, wishes for Christians to do away with this boasting, regardless of whether one is, is Jewish or Gentile, um, as all are found to be in a place of judgment. So Paul doesn't wish for, for Christians to mistake the law if, if we're practicing Jewish law or practicing Christian uh, living. Paul wishes that we not mistake this as a means for justification before God, but rather that the law of faith that's referred to is given in verse 28. Therefore, there is no need, to, uh, to, no need or use in boasting of one's own works. Paul has been there. As far as the law goes, as far as uh, godly living goes, Paul was on the A-team. He was at the top. You know, he was leading the charge in the, in the Jewish uh, community. In fact, he was leading the charge against the Christian church as it was arising. We read in another letter that Paul wrote, in the letter to the Philippians, 
He says there, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So as far as the law is concerned, Paul was righteous. Paul was blameless. He was upright. He was a good man. And yet, this was not enough to make him righteous before God. Only Jesus could sign that check. Only Jesus could bring him to standing. So the Torah, or the Jewish law, teaches of righteousness of God. And in particular, though perhaps uh, we, we may not see this straight away, the Torah in fact teaches of salvation through faith. Righteousness through faith. And so we move into chapter 4, where we look at Abraham's chapter 4 of um, Romans, I should say, we look at Abraham. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So Abraham is used here as an example because he is the father of Judaism. But as verse 11 points out, which we'll get to momentarily, he is also the father of all who live by faith. Paul outlines that Abraham was upright in the faith and would therefore have had something to boast about before humanity, yet not before God, as he was not yet righteous despite his good works. Paul quotes Genesis 15, where God has promised to Abraham that he will have a great number of descendants, too many to count. In fact, God says to Abraham, look at the stars. Look up at the stars. How many of you have looked at the stars in the night sky and just thought, wow, there is a lot of stars? Well, that's what God said to Abraham. But God said, this is how many descendants you will have. Abraham's belief and trust in this promise was credited to him as righteousness. And we move to verses 4 and 5 and we see the difference between something that is owed or earned or perhaps a due reward with the gift of righteousness through faith in promises of God. This free gift 
is an act of grace, whereas a due reward is an act of justice, something that is, is right, something that is, is earned. We read on into verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So Paul supports his teaching by quoting David in the Psalms, who was pronouncing blessing over those who are reckoned with righteousness, instead of damnation, as their sins may deserve. He defines righteousness here as a non-reckoning of the sins that are committed. And we see that the righteousness that Abraham was credited with was given before he had been circumcised. That is to say that Abraham had been made righteous before the law had come. If we read on into Genesis 15, we see the covenant made with Abraham, who was Abram before this point, the covenant made with Abraham after his righteousness had been declared. He was made righteous before God apart from the law. which is at the centre of what sola fide is about, that we have faith alone, faith apart from the law. So to summarise, Paul has shown how Abraham was justified by his faith apart from the law and has defined him as the father of all who walk in faith. So we too have descended from Abraham as those who walk in faith. We read on from verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where, uh, where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, 
but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who was the father of all of us, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Wow, that, that's pretty dense. That's, that's a lot to take in. And pretty typical of Paul, might I say. Reiterating Genesis, Paul writes that if, the, that if the heirs to Abraham and the promise given to him were to be by works of the law, faith would be nullified. The gift of salvation by the grace of God would no longer be a gift but a due, a due reward for toilish Jewish Christians or those Christians observing Jewish law. But the gift of salvation is for Jews and Gentiles alike, apart from the law. Verse 17 gives explanation to the character of God that Abraham knew and transitions from the Jewish faith to the present-day Christian faith. So we'll just go back to verse 17. And that reads, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, that is, in whom Abraham believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is the character of God that Abraham knew. This is the God who has existed in all time, eternity past, eternity future. And this is the God that we come to know today. This is the God that has promised Abraham an offspring so great it will be as the number of the stars in the sky. And despite this promise, Abraham is, as it says, a hundred years old. His wife is of similar age. She's barren. They have no children. And yet God makes this promise to them. All the evidence in the situation is against the promise that God made with Abraham. 
and yet Abraham still believes. It's this faith in the midst of despair that gives Abraham righteousness before God. That is to say that Abraham's relationship with God is made right. In verses 23 to, to the end, brings it home for Christians today. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The Christian faith today believes in a God who gives life to the dead. It believes in a God who calls into existence the things that do not exist. And it believes in a God who delivered up Jesus for our trespasses, for our sins. And it believes in a God who raised Jesus up for our justification for our pardon and to be our Lord. These things are seemingly impossible, yet the Christian faith believes that God can do, has done and is doing them. One of my former teachers and author writes, Thus, those who believe in Christ's resurrection from the dead and so believe that he is Lord have the same faith that Abraham had. We believe in a God who brings life out of death. God reckons such faith as righteousness for all people. So the righteousness that was credited to Abraham because of his faith is the same righteousness that is credited to us for the faith that we have. And Romans reads on, we, we won't go into chapter 5 and beyond, but Romans reads on that because of this justification, and as David said, which Paul quoted earlier, we are blessed and have received peace with God, hope of life eternal, a motivation for enduring suffering and life with Christ. These are the things that we receive out of that justification, out of that being made right with God, out of that reconciliation with the Father. Perhaps you're not yet Christian, you're seeking faith, or perhaps you are Christian and you might be unsure of your faith. We see after reading Romans, that faith is critical to salvation, is critical to life with the Father. So if you're in this situation, you might be asking, how can I get some faith? How can I get this faith that will give me all these things?
God is the one who creates faith and cultivates it so that we may receive by his grace the gift of forgiveness and redemption. As we just read, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. It's God that creates this faith. It's God that calls this faith to existence. There's two ends to the spectrum here. There's the perspective that you know, we are unable to have faith. We can't create this faith on our own, so therefore no one has faith. Or there's the other end of the spectrum where perhaps we've been watching Oprah too much during the day and everyone gets some faith. You get some faith. I get some faith. Everybody gets some faith. It's not like either of these ends. God as God gives faith to whom he chooses. We are not to know the mind of God. If we did know, that would make us God and that's not who we are. So if you're not yet Christian and you want to have this faith, you want to come into this, this family, we can seek faith. We can pray to God. Ask God for faith. There are examples in the New Testament of, of unbelievers who have asked for belief, asked for um, encouragement, asked for this belief, for faith. So I would encourage you and challenge you to seek this faith, ask God for this faith, to read and to listen to his word, to hear what he has to say to us in his word. These things will cultivate our faith, will grow and plant faith in us. And as Christians who have received faith, there are things that we can actively do to grow in faith and to seek maturity in faith. So as I said, there are things we can actively do, but we must bear in mind that all these things involve and require God, as God is the one who creates faith. So we can study the Word. Again, that's God speaking to us. We can pray. That's God speaking to us, us speaking to God. We can gather in Christian community, which is us gathering together as people with God. And he will continue to encourage us and grow us in faith. So as Christians who have received the gift of faith that enables us to receive by the grace of God the gift of salvation, we can rest in that and pursue life with Christ. Pursue life with Christ as he intends for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you do grow faith. You do create faith. That those of us who are walking this life with you, that you have planted the seed of faith in us. We thank you that you continue to walk with us each day, that you continue to encourage us each day.
that by your faith and through the faith you have given us, we can continue to receive more of you. I ask that you continue to encourage us, continue to walk with us, continue to show us others around us that we might share this message with, share this faith with. And Lord, for those of us that are are not yet in your kingdom, Lord, not yet in the faith, I ask that you continue to pursue us, Lord. I ask that we as a church might be beacons of this faith in a community that is faithless. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.